Hello and welcome to Decision NYC with Ben Max. I'm Ben Max, your host and executive editor of Gotham Gazette. The 2021 New York City election cycle is well underway and it's poised to be the most significant municipal election in decades. All of city government is on the ballot and because so few incumbents are eligible to run for their current seats due to term limits, New Yorkers are electing many new office holders and the next roster of leadership for our city. There will be a new mayor of New York City elected here in 2021, as well as a new city controller, new borough presidents, many new city council members, and that's not all that's on the ballot. There's also a very important election happening in the city, specifically in Manhattan, but not for a city government position. There's a very crowded and competitive race for Manhattan District Attorney, the top prosecutor, the top law enforcement official of New York County, also known as Manhattan. It's a position of immense power and importance. The office holder makes key decisions that impact the lives of many New Yorkers and millions who don't live in the borough or even the city. Millions of people who call Manhattan home or work there or just visit. Decisions of life and death, freedom, incarceration, crime, punishment, and more. This is one of the most high profile and important criminal justice jobs in the country. It's technically a state level position, so there's slightly different election rules at play. For example, there's no term limits for the Manhattan District Attorney. The candidates for the office have different campaign finance rules than those for city government. And although ranked choice voting is starting this year for city government positions in special and primary elections, there is no ranked choice voting in the election for Manhattan District Attorney. But the election for Manhattan DA is happening this year at the same time as all the city government elections with a June primary and a fall general election. Got all that? <laughs> it's okay if not. But the most important thing is that you know the primary is coming up in June and that's for registered Democrats. And it's time to get to know the candidates here for Manhattan District Attorney. So we're pleased to bring you this new series of interviews with candidates running for a variety of offices, including Manhattan DA, but also mayor and others. These one-on-one -on -one conversations will help you get to know the candidates, their platforms, their resumes, their vision, and here their plans for becoming the next Manhattan District Attorney if elected. We hope this and other interviews will help you sort through your many choices and make a good informed decision when it's time to vote. So today's interview, Joining me by Zoom is Diana Florence, a Democratic candidate for Manhattan District Attorney. Diana, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. So you're running for Manhattan DA. Tell us a bit about yourself, the broad overview, who you are, where you come from, what brings you to this race, and then we'll get into a whole bunch of specifics. Thank you. I'd be glad to do that. So my name is Diana Florence, and I am running for the people who never thought they'd win. I have fought for that population my entire career. I was a prosecutor in the Manhattan DA's office and I created the first of its kind construction fraud task force where I prosecuted crimes of power like wage theft and corruption and health and safety violations against workers and immigrants alongside managing scores of investigators, lawyers and analysts, not just from in the DA's office, but from outside as well. I, I managed uh, workers and investigators from state and federal agencies as well as city agencies to bring these cases. And what I really have been about is focusing my efforts on making sure the voiceless have a voice 
it's something I've done my entire life. I am the only sibling of David who is profoundly autistic and does not speak. So from an early age, I've used my voice to advocate for both of us. And it's how I got myself to the Manhattan DA's office because I saw very early on in my legal career when I was in law school, that if you really wanted to do change, you had to do it from within. Because I worked as a public defender in my law school's clinic. And because I speak Spanish, I had all the clients that didn't speak English down in North Carolina. And so what I found was when I was interpreting both the law and the language for those clients, that it didn't matter how innocent the client was, how great an argument I had. Ultimately, at the end of the day, if the prosecutor didn't care, was all about incarceration and throwing the book at my client, that was the end of it. So I became a prosecutor to flip that narrative. And I did for five years, um, starting in 1995, I prosecuted domestic violence alongside women and kids who were victims of terrible abuses. And I didn't do it in the same old way. I always looked for the alternate ways to get accountability. That might mean a, a woman testifying, but it also might mean me looking at a creative case. So in other words, finding a document crime or something alternative, or even looking for counseling. It was always not my imposing my view, but working alongside the, the survivors of this abuse that we came up with the solutions. After that though, I spent the next two decades tackling wholesale corruption. It started after 9-11 when people made up family members and collected hundreds of thousands of dollars from the Red Cross and other charities, held them accountable. Then I moved into the construction industry and I found that you could literally do major cases if you worked simultaneously with the agencies and private sector individuals who are affected. So the case that really got me on this path was involving the falsification of concrete uh, at the World Trade Center, Yankee Stadium and scores of other landmarks. The case started with a formerly incarcerated man who was an inspector and he was being blamed for a false test. But I knew right away when I got the case that it could not make sense because he was coming from Brooklyn and he had been on parole and why would he falsify it? And in fact, what it ended up leading to was not only the CEOs and executives at that company, but the entire industry using a institutionalized software system that was falsifying the very strength of the building materials like steel and concrete that underlie our structures. And so using that out of the box approach, working simultaneously with government agencies, with private sector, with workers, with tenants, with immigrants, I really was able to get at the heart of fraud and really go after power. And I'm so, so proud as a result of that work to have the endorsement of a dozen labor unions. I am the only candidate in this race that has any union support. And they know that I will go after power without fear or favor. And that's why I'm so proud to be here running for DA. Thank you so much so, for giving me the opportunity. Sure, and thank you for that uh, introduction to your, to your work. So, um, you know, there's, there's sort of a division in this, in this large uh, field of candidates, fairly large field of candidates in terms of folks who've worked as prosecutors, folks who haven't, um, you know, people talking about all different degrees of reform. Can you capture for people, um, you know, some of the big 
strokes of, of ways that you would want to change the Manhattan District Attorney Office if you're elected? Are there sort of key planks to what you're saying your version of reform would be? Because everybody's talking about reform, of course, but it takes different shapes for different candidates. Absolutely. You know, you would think that actually, you would think because I'd been in the office so long that I would have some sort of default to keep things just as they are. But it's quite the opposite. I can tell you that the office has not changed in 45 years. When Morgenthau came in in 75, he did a wholesale restructuring and nothing like that has happened, not under this current DA, and it is long overdue. What I mean by that is not office space. I mean changing the way we approach justice. And that means flipping the equation right now because the majority of the attorneys are focused on crimes of poverty, not crimes of power. When I talk about crimes of power, I'm talking about corruption. I'm talking about domestic violence, sexual assault, human trafficking, labor crimes, housing fraud, and of course, police accountability and abuses. We need to send our attorneys in that direction, not prosecuting people for standing on a street corner or peaceful protesting. And so that is my top line vision, is, is really refocusing our efforts and our resources on crimes of power. When it comes to crimes of poverty, we need to be looking at them holistically. And we need to be not using jail as a default. And in fact, actually trying to work together with people to solve the problems. The way I propose to do that is when you go after corruption, which I did again for more than two decades, what I can tell you is that you can sentence companies to, um, to fund these very programs that will help us solve these problems. So for example, it costs $10,000 a person to be involved in getting out, staying out. And this is a program that deals with youth and violence and getting kids out of that cycle. $10,000 a kid, you can sentence a company that has doing minority and women-owned business fraud or bribery, not only to paying back what they owe, but actually funding these very problems that we are facing in the city. Would you um, change the way that your bureaus and your ADAs, your assistant district attorneys are evaluated? Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of con connected conversation to what you just talked about in terms of going after more crimes of power than crimes of poverty with you know, how, how ADAs are, are instructed and the directives they're given and then how they're evaluated. Are there ways that you would use data or get away from using data? How would you handle that? Yes, well, first off, we need to stop measuring success by how many indictments someone has or how many convictions they have or even the amount of sentences uh, years in jail. Um, and that's something that I always eschewed when I was in the office. I always looked individually at cases I'll give you an example. Um, I was prosecuting a large uh, insurance ring and one of the people that got wrapped up in it was an Uber driver. And he had um, you know, gotten $5,000 to have his car sort of disappeared. It was an international ring. They were shipping the cars off offshore. Um, this was a man that on its face, I could have got a very, you know, very high level conviction for insurance fraud. I could have sent him to prison. But talking to his lawyer, talking to him through his lawyer, what I learned was this man had a heart condition. He had bills, he had the weight of the world on him. And there was not justice in getting him um, out of our community. There was no justice. This was a man who had never committed a crime before. There was no justice in making him take a felony. So together we came up with an alternate. 
Ultimately, he paid back the money and he pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor. That's the way we need to be doing um, our cases. That's made we need to use our power, not to sort of wrap up statistics, but really treat the problem at its source and ultimately make that case the very last case that they are coming into the criminal justice for. A very small, uh, you know, related to this, a very small percentage of cases, of course, go to trial. Is there a way that you would change the plea bargaining directives and structures and, and protocols in the office? And would you do away with the so-called trial penalty? Yes, the trial penalty is a relic from another time. It should not be used. It's not something that I engaged in and we absolutely need to end it. In terms of plea bargaining, again, it really has to be on a case by case basis. For too long, this DA has had these blanket policies. Uh, if you have certain things in your background, just it's a non-starter. We need to stop with the non-starters. We need to look at each case and not just think about the accused because let me be clear about that. We need to be thinking about the survivors as well. They have a voice and they need to be involved in working out these dispositions. So yes, we, we need to be figuring out which case is appropriate. If the person wants to go to trial, that's great. Ultimately, my view always has been, I leave the sentencing to the judge. I do my job. I, if I get a conviction, the judge will make the, the determination. That's how I would handle sentencing mm -hmm. and no more trial tax. Let's talk about gun violence and, and the ways in which the district attorney's office can prevent it, should punish it. You know, there's there's obviously big differences between the, um, you know, not to make light of it, but the sort of run of the mill gun possession case and the actual shootings, the actual murders, the actual, you know, physical violence that occurs when a gun is fired. Are there ways that you would change the office's approach to gun crimes? Absolutely. First off, let me just say, violence is never okay. And we always need to make sure that people that engage in violence are held accountable. But that does not mean that, again, we do a blanket policy of saying there's always a minimum and there's this is always going to be the case. The reality is violence and gun possession start with, frankly, a gun. And how did they get here? We have to ask that question. New York has the toughest gun laws in the country, and yet we have shooting after shooting. That's because we haven't attacked the source of those guns. I know because I've done these cases, I've done large scale trafficking cases, and I've taken you know, dozens of guns off the street. The way we do those cases is we, we create partnerships with other prosecutors. It's something that I've done in my career over and over, where we don't just pretend that things end, begin and end at the borders of our island of Manhattan. We need to see that North Carolina and Virginia are the sources of these guns getting into our city. And you need to work with prosecutors and investigators down the Atlantic coast to make sure that those guns are stopped. Then once we, we end the gun trafficking and we limit the amount of guns here, then we need to be looking individually, as I said, with the cases, with the shootings. And we need to be figuring out what's happening. And yes, holding them accountable. And if that entails, involves jail, fine. But ultimately what we need to do is make sure that that person has a way back to the community. And that means investing in the youth programs that I mentioned before 
before briefly. You know, getting out, staying out is a great example. That's a program that starts as someone is charged and they deal with the, with the youths um, and talk to them about different programs they can have in an internship or an education, or if they have underlying mental health or addiction programs, that's what you wanna be doing as the case is pending. Then they go to jail, they may get training or not, but at the end of the, their time, they are now connected back to the program so we can make sure that that case is the last case that they have. Are there, are there ways that you would try to assure people that while you are instituting reforms and not uh, criminalizing poverty, as you talked about before, that you're also addressing, you know, there's a lot of concern about this increase in gun violence that we saw in 2020 across the city, um, but, in, but concentrated in, in a number of specific neighborhoods, mostly as gun violence um, has historically been in the city. Are there things you'd say to people while you're working on these variety of reforms I will also make sure that the people that are the, the small number of people in the city relative to the population that are perpetrating the, the actual shootings and murders in the city are held accountable. Of course, I've, I've done that. In other words, I, I, I do think that we need to use incarceration sparingly. We cannot have a mass incarceration crisis. But of course, they've always been very careful. I understand the awesome power of being able to take someone's liberty away. But if someone, as I said before, if someone commits violence, yes, jail should be on the table. It just can't be the only thing and it can't be a blanket policy. We have to look at each case individually, but absolutely. So, so I wanna come back to um, a little bit more of what you were talking about, about going after crimes of power, um, some, some of the categories of uh, what's typically referred to as white collar crime. As a segue back to that though, I wanna ask you about your departure from the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. This related to a series of, of incidents, but one major one in particular where there, where there was withholding of, of evidence uh, in cases that you worked on what went wrong there? Uh, what would you do differently if you could go back and do it again? And how do you, you know, how do you sort of assuage people's fears who would be interested in a lot of your platform but worried about this uh, departure? Uh, thank you so much for asking uh, this question because there's a, been a lot of misreporting on what happened. So I want to make the record very clear. I prosecuted crimes of power and I prosecuted on behalf of immigrants, workers, and tenants. And my work was not popular in Cy Vance's office. I resigned uh, because I was about to do a case involving landlords that were stealing millions of dollars in rent from tenants by faking renovations. And the case was just ended without any explanation. And while I was doing that case, I was also prosecuting one investigation. So it wasn't, it wasn't cases, it was one case that involved millions of documents, 13 defendants, and it was, they were all on for trial. And my resources were taken away, which is very curious because this was a case that needed a lot of resources. And yet I was left effectively to deal with the discovery on my own. And so when the discovery happened, the same mistake was made uh, in, in multiple defendants. And as soon as I learned of it, I owned it because that's what you do. You don't throw people under the bus. Mm -hmm. But ultimately what happened here is that the resources were taken away on a case involving people of power and connected attorneys. This is very typical in that concierge system of justice. I will, as your DA, I would never 
take away resources from cases that involve such serious allegations of bribery and millions of dollars. And ultimately, that is what I will do as DA, prioritize crimes of power, not crimes of poverty. Is, is there anything you would do differently, though, uh, even understanding if, if you had resources removed from, mm -hmm. from your work? As you said, you know, there were uh, assurances that you gave uh, in court, um, you know, going over, you know, what, what evidence you had in your possession more carefully. Are there things you would do differently? I made a mistake. There were millions of documents. Of course, if I could go back in time, I would have checked every document. But real, realistically, when you have a, a case that is as complex and involving as many moving parts, it's probably not realistic. That's why it's so important that when we have complex cases that we adequately resource them. And that's what I'll do as DA. Mm -hmm. So let, let's talk about um, the so-called white collar crime in different ways. You, you got at this a little bit very early in our discussion, but are, are there um, other aspects of these, um, as you said, crimes of power that you would try to bolster the Manhattan District Attorney's Office in going after? You obviously have this background um, that you've concentrated in, in related to housing, construction, um, but are there other areas that you would look to uh, invigorate the office's work in? Do you think the office has gone rigorously enough after things like uh, fraud, money laundering, cybercrime, you know, some of these other categories within the, the subcategory of um, white collar crime? No, I think that they've actually been very tepid about it. And what we've noticed under this DA is that he only acts when there's public outcry and the cases that he does are safe. So when you look at Harvey Weinstein as a good example, Harvey Weinstein wasn't done until literally scores of women came, through, came by and there was criticism after criticism. I won't act like that. I, my career has always been about proactively going out into the community and finding the fraud before it becomes entrenched. My practice has also been about open discovery and I wanna be clear about that. I did open discovery for more than a decade, giving over document after document in my cases. Why? Because the cases I did were complex. And when you give complex cases, and even in less complex cases, you need to have um, an understanding of what the evidence is. So even with our discovery laws now, we need to be sure um, that the, uh, the evidence, the documents that are given to defense attorneys are understandable. We need to have an open door policy. It's what I always did. And that's how I will conduct the white collar division of our office. We need to make sure that we're doing the complex cases, that we're doing the cyber crime cases, for example, Ransomware is something that happens very regularly. I have had so many uh, not-for-profits that I work with have their have their data stolen, and this was of you know confidential. These were undocumented people that they were threatening to send to ICE. You know the DA's office had absolutely no resource for that. I tried to get them to do those cases, and they didn't. My DA's office will actually open open that up. So instead of only focusing on the big headline, like a stub hub, we're going to be a resource for small businesses and not-for-profits who have a ransomware situation. They will be able to come into our multi-million dollar cyber crimes lab and, and have help with whether this is a hoax, whether this is real. And I'll say to you, um, Ben, you know, in terms of these cases, I know from my contacts in the cyber world that the hackers in Russia 
who, who have uh, taken apart some of our biggest organizations, their side hustle is often these ransomwares. So we can actually do the big cases by starting small. Every big case I have ever done started with something very small. Do you have any indication, and, and unfortunately in our last four or five minutes here, so if you need to keep these last few on the briefer side, but um, do you have any indication that there's areas related to Wall Street, finance, um, insurance, you know, areas that need greater scrutiny from the DA's office? Absolutely. I can tell you that we have not gone after the Wall Street and, and hedge funds and the, that, that sector. Many of my opponents, um, you know, the filings just came out today. They are heavily funded by hedge funds and real estate. I'm not taking a big, a big real estate money. Um, and it's really important. I've even heard one of my opponents say that, though, that there's no industry that's underregulated. We know that after the 2008 um, crash that only one bank, Abacus Bank, was uh, held accountable. And, they were, and, and frankly, that was a travesty in and of itself. So you're absolutely right. We need to be handling you know, corruption wherever it is. And that's what I'll do. Do you know what kind of cases? I mean, just, you know, sort of a, a topic within that topic? Absolutely. Money laundering is a huge problem. Um, I, have done I have done money laundering cases, um, and it's really important uh, to be looking behind businesses, especially with e-commerce. Um, on, on Wall Street, we need to be looking at insider trading. We have the Martin Act, right? That was what the Trump kids were almost prosecuted for, but dropped the ball. So that's, that's my next, yeah, that's actually my next question. Um, I've, heard, I've heard you say during this campaign that you think charges should have been brought years ago um, by the, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Do you think that Donald Trump himself as a private citizen is going to be charged by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office or should be? I don't know what, what Cy Vance is going to do. What I'm going to tell you is every corruption case I have ever had, and I've done many large scale, years long corruption cases, as I mentioned, they always start small and they end big. So the reality is you have to look everywhere. We know with Donald Trump, I know the same thing that you do, Ben. We know he's involved, he's engaged in wage theft. We know he's in, engaged in insurance fraud. He's in, been engaged in, in stiffing his vendors. There are so many areas that when you get a case, it starts with looking at some bank records. It starts with maybe having an interview. It also starts with actually using the tools that are in front of you. And what that what this is really about is that this DA not doing what he should have. State taxes, we don't need a subpoena for that. We can get a referral from state taxes. Why hasn't that case been done? I'm going to tell you it's because it's about a deference to power. And that's not what I'm about. I never have been about that. And as DA, I will follow the evidence without fear or favor, as I was taught by Morgenthau. And, and, and if Trump needs to be um, uh, prosecuted, he will be. I will follow the evidence. Lastly, I think you just got it a little bit, but maybe other than former DA Morgenthau, is there is there a prosecutor um, or even a criminal justice leader uh, right now or in the past that you would hold up as a role model for yourself? Maybe you don't agree on 100% of things, of course, no two people do, but you know, giving people a little bit more uh, of a feel for the folks that you see yourself in a, in a model of. Yes, of course, Morgenthau was a mentor, but I can tell you the work that I did on the Construction Fraud Task Force, prosecuting wage theft and health and safety, I ended up working a lot with, uh, with DAs across the country. That's what's so magical about Manhattan. What we do here, if we do it right, it spreads everywhere. So I helped uh, uh, Larry Krasner's office start their wage theft uh, unit. I did that for Rachel Rollins as well uh, to help them on labor crimes. I, I talked with California and Colorado. So for me, what we, I, I, I admire these reformers 
and I admire the fact that they do, and this is, I would model myself, and that when things they don't know about, the things that I was an expert on, that they came to learn. That's the way I would conduct myself. And just to be clear, in our last 30 seconds, um, you mentioned a couple major reformers who've recently been elected elsewhere in the country, and, and I understand what you're saying about sort of um, helping them on an area of your expertise. Are you are you pitching yourself as you know in the neighborhood of them in terms of how far you want to take the office in in reform? I am pitching myself as there there is a lot of really great reforms that I will take. Of course, I, mm. my my ideas my platform is based out of my experience and my vision. But I'll just say, for example, uh, the data platform um, that um, Larry Krasner and Chesa Budin in in San Francisco have done. I have a I have a policy platform based on that exact model. Transparency is everything. We cannot earn the trust back of people until we're clear about what's going on in our office. And I understand that's that's a hard question because there's so many different areas of reform. But uh, Diana Florence, thank you so much for the time. Diana Florence is a Democratic candidate for Manhattan District Attorney. Thank you for being with me. Thank you. And thank you for watching Decision NYC with Ben Max. Key decisions for New York City voters are coming up in June and the fall. And for this Manhattan District Attorney race, it's a Democratic primary coming up in June. There's a lot on the line for all of us and the future of the city the borough of Manhattan, and I hope this conversation was helpful to you as well as others. I'm Ben Max. See you next time.